Um, so would you join me in welcoming Scott Winnig? Thanks, Tim. You are funny. Uh, I can uh, speak from experience and observation on this one, and so I'd like you to believe me. Uh, we have many, many, many fine students at Denver Seminary who come through, and we are blessed to have them all, and some of them rise to the top, and two of them are on your staff. So Joseph and Tim, God bless you guys, and uh, thanks for this church. Well, I, I know that Pastor Dwayne's having a great time today because he's on sabbatical, but I just want you to know where my heart is, and my wife will attest to this. I'm having a great time because I get to be with you in church world, and despite the fact that I'm an educator professionally, uh, I actually, I'm, I'm a uh, pastor who masquerades as a seminary professor, so thanks for letting me come and share with you. Uh, we're going to take the next few weeks and look at uh, the narratives out of the book of Daniel. Daniel is 12 chapters, and the first six are narratives. Uh, the second uh, six are what we call apocalyptic, and there is a narrative in there in chapter 9, but I'm going to be here with you uh, for six weeks, so we're going to do the first six narratives. Uh, so this morning, we're going to start at Daniel chapter 1, and uh, what I'm going to do is uh, use my PowerPoint here to read the first few verses of Daniel 1 with us, and I'm going to ask you to follow along, and then we're going to unpack what this narrative is about and what it means for you and for me. Uh, Daniel 1, one, let's pay close attention, friends, because this is God's word to me and God's word to you. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. And the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Well, this will get us started. Let's pray together. And then uh, we're going to look at the rest of the narrative. Father, thanks for your mercy and your kindness and your grace that you've shown each and every one of us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who empowers us to live for you. Lord, I thank you so much for this church and what it represents in this community. And Lord, this morning we thank you for your word. We just pray now, Lord, that you would use this time and through your word to enlighten our minds and challenge our hearts and give us encouragement. And we ask all of this 
In the name of Jesus, and for our sake, amen. Uh, This morning, what I want to do is talk with you about culture. Now, this is something of a difficult choice because culture is an incredibly large topic. Uh, Culture pretty much encompasses every aspect of human life. Uh, But one definition of culture that I really, really like came from a think tank called the Willowbrook Group, which it, it spent years studying the subject. And after years and years of studying, here's how they define culture. They said culture is the pattern ways by which a group of people live. Now, you and me, all of us in this room, are part and parcel of North American culture. And North American culture has a variety of subcultures, but it has some major cultural forces to it. And those major cultural forces impose themselves on you and me on a pretty regular basis. In fact, sometimes on a daily basis. Let me illustrate this to get us started with some examples. Well, this is Starbucks, and it's the Starbucks icon. You know, 25 years ago, Starbucks was this tiny little coffee outfit up in Seattle. But they've grown and grown and grown and grown their business, and now Starbucks is pretty much everywhere in America, and it's often other places around the world. And many of us here are really excited about that. In fact, many of us here, and I am in this camp, we pay the rent at Starbucks literally every day. It influences the way we live. It's a cultural force. Let me move on. This, as you know, is the Apple icon. You know, 25 years ago, Apple was in really, really bad shape as a corporation, and then Steve Jobs came back in, and he re-envisioned the company, and they developed all these really, really cool products, and you use a lot of those products. All the way from iPods to iPads, which we have up here, to iPhones. Apple influences the way millions and millions and millions of Americans and millions and millions of people around the world live. They are an enormous cultural force in our lives. This is Taylor Swift, just in case you didn't know that. Taylor Swift is the most prominent musician in American culture today. Oh, I know, we could debate that. We could say, well, Beyonce is or some other people are. But trust me on this. Taylor Swift has huge cultural mojo. Her Twitter account, when she sends out a tweet, it explodes on the Internet. She has millions and millions and millions of followers. She influences the way many, many, many people in North America live. And if you don't believe me on that, you just ask the parents of any teenage girl in this congregation. See, as these examples show, culture is very, very powerful. It's very, very significant. It's what to wear, where to live, who to marry. And it does that whether we live in Colombia or we live in Canada or we live in Colorado. Culture is always out there, but I want to suggest to you today that culture is also in here, even if we can't always see it or feel it or touch it or get our arms around it. Friends, you and I can never, ever escape culture. And I don't think we're supposed to 
Because our God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, He is the God of culture. If we were to dial back this morning, clear back to Genesis chapter 2, what we would see there is that there was a culture in the Garden of Eden. There was Adam and there was Eve and they were communing together. They had a pattern way of living and it was with each other but also with God. It was a wonderful culture. It was a blessed culture. It was a culture without sin. But then as you know, if you've read Genesis chapter 3, they ate the forbidden fruit. They fell into sin. Everything got really, really messed up. And we've been living with the consequences of that ever since. And so what that means is, that means culture is also a good thing, but culture is also tainted by sin. And so that raises some questions for you and me as disciples of Jesus today in North America in 2016. It raises the question of, how do we engage the culture that we're part of and yet not be hindered by the culture that we're a part of? How do you and I engage the culture that we're part of and influence it for Jesus? Well, that's one of the many, many reasons why I love the book of Daniel. Because when we come to this first story, this first narrative in Daniel chapter 1, what it shows us is how Daniel and his three friends navigated the contours of the pagan culture of Babylon, and yet they did it in a way that glorified their God, our God, in the process. Now, as we go to Daniel chapter 1, what we saw from the reading was that in verses 1 and 2, we're told by the divinely inspired author that about 600 years before the time of Christ, the nation of Judah was carried off into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The reason that happened is Judah had been spiritually compromising itself for decades. And God sent prophets. He sent the prophet Habakkuk, and then he sent the prophet Jeremiah. And he called them to repent of their idolatry, but they wouldn't listen. And so eventually God's patience ran out. And the divine author wants us to know, and this is really, really important, that it was the sovereign God who delivered his own people into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar then takes them back to Babylon, and he them in Well, then we're told in verses 3 through 7, that some of the young men from the royal family and the nobility, some of the best and the brightest of Hebrew society, all of whom were probably, and we need to keep this in mind, they were probably somewhere between 14 and 16 years of age, what today we would call teenagers. Well, they're to be trained for service in the king's court. And so what they do is they find themselves in a foreign land, entering a foreign educational system in order to serve a foreign government. But I want us to notice something about this text, and I'm going to camp here for a little bit because I think this is really, really important. Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, those are their Hebrew names, which will all be changed to their Babylonian names eventually. What they do is they come into this new culture, and they start to climb the social and the educational and the political ladders in Babylonian culture. They go to the king's school, and they learn the king's language. 
They read the king's literature. They do the king's math and the king's biology. And now they're dressed also like the elite of Babylonian culture. And what we need to understand is Babylonian culture was much more affluent. It was much more sophisticated than was the culture of Judah that they just came from. And then the author goes on and he tells us in verse 7, not only do they go to the king's school and do the king's math and learn the king's language and read the king's literature, they're also given new names. Babylonian names. And these names are names that are all affiliated with the gods of Babylonia. Oh yeah, when they're taken into exile, there's a tremendous amount of loss and there is suffering. But despite the pain and the suffering and the loss for them, and they realize this when they get there, this is an incredible opportunity because, as I said, Babylonian culture was far more advanced than that of Judah. And so what they do is now they freely engage it. Let me try to make this a little bit concrete for us. For them to leave Judah and go to Babylon and engage that culture would be for, like us, to quit shopping at Cambridge, shopping at Nordstrom's. It's like giving up driving your old beat-up Volkswagen Beetle, and now you're driving a Lexus SUV. It's like you say, I'm never, ever, ever again going to eat at McDonald's because now I get to eat at Morton Steakhouse all the time. Now, I've heard, and trust me on this one, I have read commentaries on Daniel chapter 1, and most of the sermons, not all of them, but most of them, and many of the commentaries always focus on verse 8, which we'll get to in a minute, which tells us what we cannot do in the culture. And I'm going to talk about that as well. But what I want us to do here, friends, this morning, right out of the gate, is I want us to take the first element of this story, of this text, really seriously. Because what the author is doing is he's showing us that these four young Hebrew exiles are engaging this pagan culture. And it's possible for them to do that. And they know that they can do that because the sovereign God is the one who rooted them up from there and placed them over here in this new culture now what that means for you and me is this our God the sovereign God of the universe the father of the Lord Jesus Christ he has placed you and me in American culture in 2016 in other words it's no accident that you and I inhabit this particular piece of real estate at this particular time in human history. That is not an accident. That has taken place under the purview of the sovereign God. And Jesus, he did this time and time and time again with his disciples, and this applies to you and me. Jesus has called you, and he's called me to be salt and light in American culture. So what's that mean? What's that look like for us as we leave church world today and we go out into the world of American culture later today and tomorrow? Well, just to make the point, I brought in a newspaper that I subscribe to every day, and I, I really like it. It's USA Today. Because what USA Today does is it demonstrates for us at a very concrete level some of the major cultural forces that you and I engage every single day. Now, the front cover of USA Today is always marked in blue. And generally, if you read USA Today, what you discover is the blue portion, the front portion, deals with national events, international events, and it deals with politics. 
Oh my, we have a lot going on politically right now, don't we? Yeah, politics is a big part of our lives and our culture, especially in 2016. Then the second element of USA Today is marked green. And it's for money, and they deal with issues of money and finance. Now, I don't know about you, but I I like money. I think you probably like money. Money's not going away. It's part and parcel of our culture. And so what they're trying to do is instruct us in some of the ways that our culture deals with money. And then in the third part of USA Today, they mark it orange or red, and it's sports. Now, I know you like sports because you're a Tar Heel. Now, I've got to tell you the truth. I like the Tar Heels, but I'm going to confess. I like Duke as well. Okay, we're going to talk about that. We can talk about it later, okay? But I love sports. I've been playing sports since I was a little kid. I watch sports all the time. Sports is a huge part of American culture. It's not going away. And then last but not least, and they always mark this one in purple, it's called life. But basically what it is, it's the entertainment and the arts, and TV, and movies. And you know this, and so do I. Entertainment is an enormous part of American culture. See, there are lots of things in American culture that you and I, as the disciples and the followers of Jesus, can engage. And we're free to participate in those. But having said that, One of the things we always need to keep in mind is because of the sinful nature of humanity, because we're tangled, regardless of what kind of a culture we create, what kind of a culture we participate in, every culture always has its tangles. It always has its downsides. That's true of whether you're in Colombia, whether you're in Canada, or whether you're in Colorado. American culture is a many, many faceted thing that has a lot of great elements to it, but it has its... Let me illustrate this. There was a recent survey of Americans who were asked a very straightforward question. Which is worse, to watch porn or to fail to recycle? Now, here were the results. This survey was just done in the last six months. Here were the results. Quote, half of teenagers and nearly three-quarters of young adults come across pornography at least monthly And both groups, on average, consider viewing pornographic images less immoral than failing to recycle. Now, in my opinion, this is one of those rather stunning but not surprising results or findings that reflect the current mindset of culture. And that current mindset is, Certain virtues slash pseudo-virtues like recycling, and I think recycling is important. Melanie and I recycle. important. But what they're saying is recycling is really, really important, but real virtues, biblical virtues, godly virtues like sexual and moral, pure, moral purity, eh, we can kind of let those go to the side. Friends, culture isn't going away. A lot of good elements to it. Every culture has tangles in it. Our culture and the culture that Daniel engaged in Babylon. And that's what he discovered. Look here at verse 8. But Daniel resolved, and it says in the original text, he resolved in his heart. He made this really incredible decision. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official, who was Ashpenaz, 
for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, the word that's used here for defile in this context is used 11 other places in the Old Testament. It always refers to moral and spiritual defilement. See, what Daniel says is he goes, I can go to the king's school and I can learn the king's language and I can read the king's literature and I can do the king's math and I can even take on the name of one of the king's gods. But I cannot eat his food. I cannot drink his wine. Because if I do that, it'll defile me. It'll hurt my relationship with my God. Question. What was it about the king's food and the king's wine that was so bad? Well, trust me on this. You can read 10 commentators and get 30 different opinions. I mean, some people say, well, it violated the the food laws in Leviticus. Well probably not, maybe, but probably not. Some people say, well, the food and the wine was offered to idols, and so Daniel would have been participating in idolatry. Well, maybe, but maybe not. Uh, Other people say, well, no, what, what it was was when you ate the king's food and you drank the king's wine, you were making this commitment to serving the king almost like your God. There's some elements of truth there, but nobody really knows for sure. And so as we look at what exactly it was about the food and the wine... We don't exactly know, but Daniel knew. He knew. I can do all these things in Babylonian culture, but I cannot do this because it will defile me. And so what he does is he draws the line there. But what I want us to remember, and friends, this is so very, very important to keep in mind in this story. He's in exile. He's a foreigner. He's a teenage student in a government dominated by a king who is so powerful that he makes some of our contemporary politicians today look like little baby cream puffs. In other words, this is a dangerous decision he makes. It's a hard decision. It's not simple. It's very complex. It's very challenging. And that's why what happens next is so incredibly important. Look at what the author tells us. Now God, God caused the official, that's Ashpenaz, to show favor and compassion to Daniel. In other words, God comes and he's giving, if we could reinterpret favor and compassion in a New Testament way, he's giving him grace. He comes to Daniel, and, and, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord the King who's assigned your food and drink. Well, Daniel comes to Ashpenaz. And he says, listen, I know the king and his crew really, really like the Atkins diet. But I'm a slim fast guy. So what I'd like to do is not do that, and I'd like to do this. And Ashpenaz obviously is very empathetic with Daniel here, but he knows Nebuchadnezzar. And he does not want any of Nebuchadnezzar's charges under his supervision to be looking worse. And so he says, I'm, a, I'm afraid of the king. And, and as we get to know Nebuchadnezzar, rightly so. Now this is interesting. At this point, psychologically, Daniel could have said, you know what? I, I tried to honor God. I went to Ashpenaz. I tried to ask him if I could get out of this. And 
you know, I, I tried. He could have caved at this point and said, you know what? I've got to go along to get along. I've got to assimilate to Babylonian culture. But friends, what I want us to note here is he doesn't do that. And the reason why is he knows that God is in the situation. Not only is God sovereign, it's what we also call God is imminent. He's right with him. He's giving him grace through Ashpenaz. So what he does is he presses ahead. And he goes to the guard below Ashpenaz, but it's the guard who supervises he and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. And look what he does next. He goes to this guard and he says, please test your servants for 10 days. I think he got them together and he said, guys, we can't defile ourselves. Let's do this together. Let's propose a test. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in, accord, in accordance with what you see. So he, that is the guard, agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them the vegetables instead. I think we need to make a couple of comments about this section of the text. Collectively, as a little tiny community, these four young teenagers decide, we're not going to eat the king's food, we're not going to drink the king's wine. And so they propose this test. But friends, what the author wants us to know, it's not the vegetables and water that's making them look better. It's God. God is with them in Babylon. God is allowing them the opportunity to serve him in a pure and undefiled way because God is giving them grace. He placed them in that culture. He wants them to engage that culture, but he wants them to remain undefiled in that culture. In other words, they could do all kinds of stuff in Babylon, but they can't do this, and he will give them the grace to remain pure. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to give you just a word of personal testimony here. I've been a Christian over 40 years. I didn't grow up in the church, but I love the church. I I, I love the Lord. And I remember when I was a brand new Christian, I remember thinking, man, by the time I'm 30, I'm going to have all these things taken care of, and I'm just going to be check, 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 and it's all going to be sweet and easy. I wish I could tell you that was true. That has not been true for me. I love the Lord, and I love church, and I love ministry, and I can tell you this. I like the culture I live in a lot. I've traveled around the world enough to know America's pretty great. But I can also tell you this, and I say this with all sincerity. Without the grace of God at work in my life on a daily, sometimes even an hourly basis, I cannot remain pure and undefiled. I'm simply too weak. I'm too undisciplined. My sin nature goes too deep in me. I need the grace of God. And Daniel's situation here tells us that God will give us the grace. But a second observation I want us to make here about these young men. Do you notice what they do? They propose the test, but the test involves a sacrifice. 
they have to eat these vegetables or maybe their grains, we're not exactly sure, and water. And they tried for 10 days. Well, you and I could probably do anything for 10 days. But then the guard says, wow, look at them. They look way, 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 way better. I'm taking away their food and they're just getting vegetables and water. And you know what? The rest of their training takes place over the next almost three years. In other words, they're living on vegetables or grains and water for three years. Now, I like Chinese food a lot. I do not want to eat Chinese food every single day for the next three years. But functionally, friends, that's what they did. And the point is, there's lots and lots and lots of things that you can do in a culture. But in order to remain undefiled, you need God's grace. And it will require some sacrifice on your part and on my part as well. See, Jesus comes to you and me, and what he says is this. He says, you know what? I want you to engage American culture. You're my disciples. I want you to be salt. I want you to be light. I want you to engage the culture. But I want you to be undefiled by that culture. And I'll give you the grace to do that. And so that raises the question, well, what's this look like for you and me as we leave church world and go out into real world? Well, let me go back to USA Today once again just to make the point. You know, sometime this week, most of us in here are going to engage some kind of entertainment. I mean, I love music. I really like TV. I like movies. But here's what I'm learning to do. As I listen to music and as I watch various films and I watch TV shows, I'm always trying to ask myself the question, will listening to this or watching this cause some kind of slippage in my character? Or will this enhance the faith and love that Jesus wants me to have? This was a few years back. There was a Hollywood video store down on Bellevue, not far from where Melanie and I live. And I remember one night I was in there and I was shopping for a movie for us to watch. And I'll never forget this. His dad there was probably in his late 30s and he had his little girl with him, I think she was about six, maybe seven. And they were walking across this one wall of movies, and she started to cry. And she said, Daddy, these movies are so scary. I think she was right. So here's my suggestion for you and for me. Any movie or TV show or internet site or music video that sounds or looks spiritually or morally scary, we need to go to God and say, God, I need the grace to just leave that behind at all costs. Well, that's entertainment. Let's go to sports. Oh, I love sports. Jeez, I like sports. Joseph, I didn't tell you this, but a year ago, Melanie and I, we got to go to the Final Four in Indianapolis. Sorry to tell you that, but Duke won, okay? It was a great experience. We had a great time. I loved it, loved it, loved it. Had a wonderful time. Got to check that off my bucket list. I don't know about how many of you, but my wife will attest, I'm a huge Bronco fan. I love the Broncos. I love the NFL. And I got to tell you, back on February 7th, Melanie and I are sitting in our family room, and as the clock starts to wind down in the fourth quarter, and I realize, I think we're going to win. I think we're going to win. I started to get nearly ecstatic. Now, I'm much more of a Presbyterian than a Pentecostal, but when the final gun sounded, I almost spoke in tongues, okay? (laughs) I love sports. Sports are fun. 
You know, the New Testament uses lots of sports metaphors. I think the Apostle Paul likes sports. He's always talking about athletes doing this, doing that, all the time. I think that's a good thing. But friends, in America, in our culture, sometimes sports become more than just sports. Sometimes they demand and consume huge amounts of time, energy, and money. In other words, they consume and demand our loyalty. So just a couple of questions for all of us here who like sports. Are we spending more time and energy running after our teams than we are running after Jesus? Have sports for us become the food and wine in the Babylonia of American culture? Questions. Let's go to the next area, money. Wow, like I said, this isn't going to go away. But this one's tough, isn't it? This one's tougher than we think. Melanie and I were out to dinner last night with some good friends, and we were talking about the fact they tell us there's no inflation. But it seems like everything's going up and up and up. Money's tough. Because we have money we need for mortgages or rent and food and utilities and insurance, and then we want to be able to do some fun things. And then there's gasoline. It takes a lot of money to live in our culture, doesn't it? And yet American culture, and we just need to tell the truth here, it's built on consumerism. And that has the power to assimilate us and corrupt us and defile us because all our money goes towards consuming. I'm of the opinion that all of us in here probably need to grow here, so I know I do. So let's do a little bit of financial self-examination. Apart from my mortgage, your mortgage is like way out of control, how much debt am I in? And debt's usually not a good thing. In addition to my normal expenditures, or our normal expenditures as a family, what percentage, what percentage of our overall income are we giving to the work of Jesus? I love what the great reformer Martin Luther once said, because it's such a great picture. He said, God made the hands with fingers so the money would slip right through. That's a good metaphor of giving our resources. Oh, last but not least, there's politics. Oh, this is exciting. This is dynamic. 2016 has created a whole new political culture in the United States, some of which is not too good, but some of which has engaged everybody's attention. Let me give you an opinion here. My opinion is if you're a disciple of Jesus and you can vote, you should be registered to vote. You should be paying attention to the issues. You want to be well-informed, and you want to be really, really, really prayerful. And then between being informed and prayerful and trying to be biblical, you then, when the time comes in November to vote, you want to go cast your vote for the person who you think can best lead the country, the person who can best serve the state, the people who can best serve the community in which we live. In other words, we live in a democracy. It's a republic. We get to practice politics, and that's a really good thing. But what we need to remember as disciples of Jesus is as important as politics are, and sometimes they're really, really important, they are never ultimate. They're never, ever, ever ultimate. For disciples of Jesus, God's kingdom is always ultimate. See, friends, there's lots of things we can do in American culture. God calls us to engage this culture, but he wants us to remain undefiled 
in this culture. And the reason why? It's really, really good for us. But here's the thing we forget. It's really good for us to engage and remain undefiled. That's not only good for us, it's good for the culture that we're in as well. Let me show you what I mean by looking at the next few verses of this text. Verses 17 and following. To these four young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, to these four young men, these four little Jewish kids in Babylonian culture, God, God gave, note that, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel can understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set up by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. Well, they come in on graduation day, and it's clear that they're the brightest of the entire graduating class. And I think it's a temptation for us to look at this and interpret it and say, well, obviously, they're God's people, so they're just automatically better. I don't think that that's accurate. They stand out in the Babylonian court because of what the author tells us in verse 17. God gave. God is giving them the grace. He's the one who gave them their knowledge and their gifts and their abilities. Oh, yeah, I'm not denying this. They go to school and they study hard and they took their exams and they wrote their essays and they did their experiments and they come out on top. They come out on top. But it was God working in them and through them that allowed them to get to that level. And here's what we need to know that's so really, really, really important about this text, and it's important for you and me. The reason why God does that is because He wants a witness to Himself in Babylon. See, God cares about His people, the Hebrews, but God also cares about those Babylonians, and they know nothing about Him. And He wants them to is and what He's like in order to draw them to Himself. And for that to happen in Babylonian culture, which was incredibly hierarchical, and everything started at the top and flowed down, what God wants is He wants some of His people in the court at Babylon so that Nebuchadnezzar and the rest of the court know this is what the God of the universe looks like. Because His people are here and they stand out. Now, you know this, and so do I. American culture is really, really, really different than Babylonian culture. We're in a functionally egalitarian society. Yeah, there's some hierarchy, but not like that at all. You and I get to go different places all the time. We can climb the ladder if we want. There's lots and lots of opportunities. And here's what we need to know. Here's what I need to know and you need to know. See, what God wants is He wants you and I to engage American culture, not be defiled by American culture, so that we can be a witness to Jesus in this culture. That's what he has called us to do. And the reason why is because there's lots and lots and lots and lots of people in this community, this city, this culture that matter to God and they do not yet know him. And he wants them to see what he looks like. So let me make this really concrete. Some of you in here, some of you in here, you are way, 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 way good at doing business. You have been graced and gifted by the sovereign God 
to do business really well. You know how to start businesses, raise up staff, create businesses, sell businesses, make lots of money. You know how to do business way well. You are just gifted and graced by God to do that. And you know what? God wants you to be doing business to show all the people in the business community in this city and this, this part of the town what it looks like when Jesus is doing business. Some of you in here, you're way good in sports or you're way good in music or you're way good in the dramatic arts. You're a smarty pants student. You are. And you know what? That's great. And God wants you to do that. And he's graced you and gifted you to do that. But the reason he's graced you and gifted you to be so good on the team or so good in the dramatic arts or so good in the classroom is because he wants all those kids around you or all those other students around you, he wants them to see what Jesus looks like when he's excelling on the team or in the dramatic arts or in the classroom. Some of you in here, you come from really, 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 really good families. You have really good marriages. You have really good kids. God has graced you in that way. You're really emotionally intelligent. You get the whole relational thing. You know how to do relationships better than pretty much anybody. That's God's grace in your life. And what he wants you to do is he wants you to use your marriage and your family to show other marriages and other families inside and outside the walls of this church, but especially in this community, here's what Jesus looks like in a really good family. And there's so many people in a broken culture like ours who need what you have to give. And last, and certainly not, 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 not least of all, this church is an awesome church. It has great staff. It has a great location. It has an awesome building. It's got great people. That's God's grace to Deer Creek Church. And what God wants to do is he wants to use Deer Creek Church to engage this culture of Littleton and show what he looks like in order to reach more and more and more lost people in this community because He wants a witness to them because he cares about them. Now just imagine with me for just a second. Just imagine if that were to happen. Just imagine if all the people in the schools and the business community and the sports teams in the neighborhood saw the individual members of Deer Creek Church living out their faith, excelling for Jesus in whatever capacity, whatever area he's called them to. Just imagine if they saw that. You know what I think they do? They'd say, I want what she has. I want what he has. Just imagine if when people encounter Deer Creek Church in Littleton, they say, wow, wow, those people really do love their God and they really do care about each other and they really do care about us and they really want to help us. Just imagine, just imagine how lives might be changed and families might be touched and people might be saved. And the community of Littleton is touched with the grace of God. Friends, that is possible. That is possible. But what that means is we have to engage the culture, not being defiled by it, but rather trusting in the grace of God to help us be a really effective witness to this culture and this community. That's what God's called us to. And if that happens, if that happens, the culture around us will be changed. Lives will be touched for eternity. And God, the sovereign God, the great God, the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be glorified. Let me pray for us. 
and then Joseph's going to come up and lead us in the Lord's Supper. Father, thanks for your grace. We need it. We're going to now participate in another aspect of it. May you be here with each and every one of us today in your name. Amen.